So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Those are the last five verses of Psalm 90, which along with Psalm 87 are the psalms appointed for today, Saturday, September the 25th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thank you for being along today. I appreciate it very much. It's a complicated bunch of lessons, and I'm not sure that I'm going to do justice to all this because it's going to take a while, and so I've got to kind of work through it. It's, it's an odd set of lessons, to be honest with you, because it's so, there's so many complicated little things in them. So let's get to work. So in 2 Kings, we've got chapter 11, verses 1 to 20a, and then in, uh, in the first epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 7, 10 to 24, and then in Matthew's gospel, chapter 6, 19 to 24. So here we go. <laughs> now when Athaliah, the, or Athaliah, Athalia, I don't know which way to pronounce it, the mother of Ahaziah saw that her son was dead. She arose and destroyed all the royal family, her kids, <laughs> her kids. That's who she destroyed, her children and her grandchildren. Who is this? Let's call her Athalia. Who is this Athalia? Well, she is the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. She has a lot in common with her mother, Jezebel. She decided she wanted to be the ruler. And the only way you can be the ruler in Israel is if you destroy the rest of the royal family. And so she did. She went and destroyed all the others so that there would be no rival to the throne. She's the only queen who reigned in Jerusalem. And then it says, But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were being put to death, and she put him and his nurse in a bedroom. Thus they hid him from Athaliah so that he was not put to death. I mean, this has echoes certainly of Moses, but it also has more sort of reminiscent echoes recently of the the idea that, that one of the Tsar's children back in um, Tsarist Russia, Anastasia, had been secreted away and hidden. But Joash is taken away by his aunt and, and hidden from the murderous queen Athalia. And he remained with her for six years, hidden in the house of the Lord, in the temple, because... Um, What's her, what's her name? Sorry. Um, Jehoshaphat is married to the priest Jehoiada, who will come up. So, so he is hidden. He, Joash, is hidden in the house of the Lord while Athaliah reigned over the land. In the seventh year, I mean, he's a child at this point. He's, he's seven or eight years old. In the seventh year, Jehoiada, the priest, sent and brought the, and the, <laughs> and the husband of Jehoshaphat sent and brought the captains of the Karites and of the guards and had them come to him in the house of the Lord. He made a covenant with them and put them under oath in the house of the Lord, and he showed them the king's son. So here he is. This is the rightful ruler over Judah. And he commanded them, this is the time, the thing you should do, a third of you, those who come off duty on the Sabbath and guard the king's house, another third being at the gate sewer and a third at the gate behind the guards, 
So that first third that came off duty on the Sabbath and guard the king's house shall guard the palace. And the two divisions of you which come on duty in force on the Sabbath, the two that were mentioned in that parenthetical, and guard the house of the Lord on behalf of the king shall surround the king, each with his weapons in his hand. And whoever approaches the ranks is to be put to death. Be with the king when he goes out and when he comes in. So on the Sabbath... The captains did according to all that Jehoiada commanded, and they each brought his men who were to go off duty on the Sabbath with those who were to come on duty on the Sabbath and came to Jehoiada the priest. And the priest gave to the captains the spears and the shields that had been King David's, which were in the house of the Lord. And the guards stood, every man with his weapons in his hand, from the south side of the house to the north side of the house, around the altar and the house, on behalf of the king. Then he brought out the king's son and put the crown on him and gave him the testimony. And they proclaimed him king and anointed him, and they clapped their hands and said, Long live the king. When Athaliah heard the noise of the guard and of the people, she went into the house of the Lord to the people. And when she looked, there was the king standing by the pillar, according to the custom, and the captains and the trumpeters beside the king, and all the people of the land rejoicing and blowing trumpets. And who is this child? This is a child she hadn't seen in seven years. And so... It's her grandson. And she tears her clothes and cries, treason, treason. Then Jehoiada the priest, I mean, can't, it, it, is it not just absolutely remarkable that a woman who killed her entire family so that she could be queen would now be accusing other people of treason? Unbelievable. Then Jehoiada the priest commanded the captains who were set over the army, bring her out between the ranks and put her to death with this and put to death with the sword anyone who follows her. For the priest said, Let her not be put to death in the house of the Lord. So they laid hands on her. She went through the horse's entrance to the king's house, and there she was put to death. And Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord and the king and the people, that they should be the Lord's people, and also between the king and the people. Then all the people of the land went to the house of Baal and tore it down. His altars and his images they broke in pieces, and they killed Matan, the priest of Baal, before the altars. Now remember, Baal worship is characteristic of Jezebel and her family. Baal would have been the the sort of deity for their uh, for the the area that that her father oversaw, and she brought Baal worship into the northern kingdom, and here Athaliah has obviously brought Baal worship into Judah itself, and so Jehoiada now sees an opportunity to get rid of this Baal worship, and so they tore down the altars and images and killed the priest of Baal there. And the priest posted watchmen, the priest Jehoiada, posted watchmen over the house of the Lord. And he took the captains, the Karaites, the guards, and all the people of the land, and they brought the king down from the house of the Lord, marching through the gate of the guards to the king's house. And he took his seat on the throne of the kings. So all the people of the land rejoiced, and the city was quiet after Athaliah had been put to death with the sword at the king's house. Can you imagine, honestly, being a subject of Judah, and and seeing this murderous, crazy um, descendant of Ahab and Jezebel come into the throne by murdering her own children and grandchildren and, and having to deal with that for seven years before she is usurped. I've told you that, that it, it seems God does things completely in his own time, and he allowed this for that period of time prior to the raising up of Joash, who becomes one of the best kings in the history of, of Israel. 
and he is this woman's grandson. But but it's amazing the things that the Lord allows, and we all can just trust that it's somehow these horrible rulers serve a purpose in God's in God's way of doing things. There's there's something they're doing. There's some reason that they're allowed to do these things. It may be completely incomprehensible to us, but not to him. In the Matthew's Gospel today, we, we skipped these verses yesterday, and now we come back and pick them up, and there's some oddity in here, to say the least. He says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. This could have come directly from Ecclesiastes. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. It could have come directly from something that Solomon would have written. It, it was just to say it's not, you know, there's no reason to do that because it all goes away anyway. You don't get to carry it into eternity. Jesus says, lay up yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And, and if we can know anything for certain about human nature, it's that line, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The thing that's most important to us. I, I can tell you what that is. I, I think I probably told this before. I had a, a business partner at one point who got up really early every morning, tried to have a breakfast um, meeting, and then worked all day, tried to have a dinner meeting. And sometimes we would go to, we, we were in Tampa, and we would go to either a hockey uh, match, or we would go to a baseball game or whatever afterwards with clients. And, and But anytime anybody asked him what was the most important thing in his life, he would tell them, oh, it's my children. And finally, after a while, I said, hey, i got to just drop the flag on that. You don't ever see them. They, you don't see them at all. And I've been at your house, spent the night there. When you were somewhere else, when they heard you come into the garage, they went to bed because they didn't have any interest in spending time with you. And his response was, is that, well, financially, I make everything possible for them. That's how I put them first. Yeah, well, that's not what they want. And and the treasure was the money. It absolutely was. And you could tell by the way that he spent his time. Anyway, the, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? It, it, this is speaking about the light coming into our lives. And what is it we're allowing in? You know, be careful little eyes, what you see kind of a thing. But it's interesting, this eye is bad thing. That comes up again in Matthew 20. When Jesus tells the parable of the laborers in the vineyard, who he hires some in the morning, some midday, some at the end of the day, and he, he, he tells them all, uh, I'll, he tells the first ones, I'll give you a denarius, which is a day's wages, and then he tells the others, we'll settle up at the end of the day. Well, he settles up with everybody for the same amount, and the people who are hired early in the day grumble about that. that it's not fair. They get the same thing we do. And he said, well, didn't we agree on that? And what we always see is, is it is it do you begrudge my generosity is the way it's translated. But what it says is actually not that at all. It says your eye is bad. In other words, the way you perceive things is wrong. There's a problem with you, not with me. You got what you agreed to. And and so here, what it's saying is, is that what is it that we're allowing into our lives and how do we perceive the reality around us? How do we perceive things? Do we see them as evil or do we, do, are we looking to see God at work in all things? And I think that's the main issue we have is, is that what are we allowing in? What, how do we perceive the world around us? 
Do we see that it's God haunted? Do we see just the evil? Or, or do we persevere in what we do because we believe in him, because we believe that he pervades all things by his spirit. And so it's what are we taking in? Is that taking it, what we're taking in through our eyes? Is that something that produces light or produces darkness? And if we just allow in darkness, then we walk in darkness is what Jesus is saying. No one can serve two masters for either he'll hate the one or love the other. Or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. So both those things surround, surrounding the, the, about the eyes, the lamp of the body, have to do with money and treasure. And so that has something to do with it as well. What is it that entices you? What is it that, that always captures your attention and holds you in its throes? And so he, he's saying that that needs to be him. In the First Corinthians passage, there's some more difficult stuff here. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband shall not divorce his wife. It's exactly what Jesus said, right? I mean, no. If you leave other than adultery, then don't get remarried because you're committing adultery. So he said, to the rest, which is the unmarried, I, I say, I, not the Lord, I'm speaking on my own here, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If a woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. And, and what it's saying is, is that there's a possibility that this can come around, that these things can change. And what it also does, it validates the children, because marriage is marriage, period, end of sentence here. And so since it's marriage, period, end of sentence, no matter what, then then the children will be made holy. In other words, they, they won't be illegitimate children. He says, otherwise your children will be unclean, but as it is, they're holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In other in such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. They're not bound to live with that, that unbelieving spouse if the unbelieving spouse leaves. God has called you to peace. So your job in the marriage is to bring about peace. Even if your spouse is unbelieving, it's not a good enough reason to get divorced, is what Paul's saying. But, but it doesn't mean you're free to marry somebody else. He says, God has called you to peace for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, you will not save your wife? So Paul's calling us to make peace in the marriage, to be the ones who keep peace. And if the other chooses to leave, then so be it. But he doesn't say that you have license then to go and marry somebody else. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God's called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Don't seek to remove the marks. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek un or circumcision, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God, your way of life, is what truly matters. It's, it's not all these other external things that make any difference. So just be, be, be confident in yourselves and, and be confident in your walk with the Lord as opposed to the external marks of these things. He said, remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when you were called? Don't be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. In other words, it's not a negative mark against you in the kingdom that you're a bondservant. So don't see Christianity as a reason to, to escape being a bondservant because you're equal to everyone else. 
even as a bondservant. But if you can get your freedom, by all means, get your freedom, because who wouldn't want to be free? For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman in the Lord. And so your situation has actually changed. And Paul shows this in the letter to Philemon when he talks about Onesimus being a brother in Christ, not just your servant. He is also a brother in Christ. And he makes no distinction between the two. We're given a new status because we're in a new kingdom. What your status is in the world doesn't define your status in the kingdom. And that's one of the things that we need to be a little bit better at, to be perfectly honest with you, because what we do tend to do is what James warned us about a few weeks ago, and that was preferring a rich man over a poor man. No, we should be looking at the gifts and graces. Whenever we're looking at leadership in the kingdom, we shouldn't measure the fitness for leadership based on your fitness for earthly leadership. So Paul says we're all equal, and, and but that means more than simply we're brothers in Christ. It means we are all literally equal in the kingdom. We don't measure one another by those externals of successful, unsuccessful, rich, poor, all that kind of stuff. No, we're truly at every level to consider one another brothers and sisters in the kingdom. He says, Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Don't become bondservants of men. Stop thinking in the same way that the rest of the world thinks. And that's exactly what Jesus had said, is to stop thinking of yourself, stop thinking of others, stop thinking of treasure in the way the world sees these things. See one another as brothers and sisters in Christ on equal footing with one another, no matter where worldly standing might be. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called there, let him remain with God. It's, these are all important lessons. And it begins with that first lesson where suddenly this child is accepted as king. Let's not judge by externals. Let's see things the way God sees things and judge things the way God judges them. Let him raise up who he would raise up in the kingdom. And let us have kingdom values and kingdom eyes.